Another disappointing final game before yet another international break. We'll be discussing the defeat to Blues, that shocking penalty decision. And we'll speak to Albion legend Brendan Batson and answer all your questions on the latest Baggies broadcast. Hello Albion fans and welcome back to the latest episode of the Baggies broadcast here at the Express and Star. My name is Johnny Drury and as always I am joined by the ENS's Albion correspondent Mr Lewis Cox. Coxie, how are you? Have you missed me? Missed you mate, welcome back. How could you leave it? Not not quite as long as I left you, admittedly. But um, yeah, you yeah. had three months. You had three months off, mate. I've only had <laughs> five days. Three three days. Yeah, yeah. All keeps going peak tongue when we uh, when we dare take annual leave, doesn't no, it? So as no. as, as we're going to discuss. Um, but yeah, I, I don't. I, I know you were watching on on Sky Friday night, mate. But um, oh, I wasn't, pop- mate. I was following it on Twitter. I couldn't bring myself oh, to watch you, it on you Sky. You surprised me. You surprised every me. Every time but, I yeah, watch, well, every time I used to watch Alvin on Sky, they lose. So I just don't yeah. do it. I'm not there. Well, I think I'd rather have been where you were than at Intermolly <laughs> that night, mate. So, um, so yeah. But I, you know, I managed to cope on my own. Just about, you know, we got we got through. We got through, and now, yeah. Oh, I I could rant for this whole podcast about international breaks. Honestly, I can't. Not just in this role. Not just selfishly with this role, and not having presses and games. I I, I just can't stand them really, uh, especially when it's qualifiers. Like I don't. Does anyone muster any entertainment from an England qualifier that they're going to win and then top their qualification mm-hmm. group with maximum points? You know, ugh. Oh, and then you throw the Nations League stuff in there as well. My God, it's tedious. But yeah, um, not a fan. And uh, especially not a fan when it's a nightmare of a result heading into it to stew on for a fortnight. Yeah, not a fan either. Get used to it. There's another one in November, which we'll, uh, we won't get yeah, too bad about. Three three months. Three and three, three months. months to start the season. Three oh and three months. But uh, just to soften that blow, Baggies fans, we've got an extra, extra, well, extra long probably it'll end up being Baggies broadcast. We've got a 20 minute interview with Brendan Batson um, about his new autobiography. I sat down with him and uh, and journalist and, and writer Chris Lepkowski, who's been writing that book with him. Um, so we'll discuss how that came about. Uh, we'll bring you that halfway through the podcast. We've got all your questions to answer. Um, but we're going to start with Blues. Well, we'll start with. With what Coxie was mentioning there, you know, Lewis went on his on his three month honeymoon, and Albion could only draw games, and then he comes back. Albion went two on the banks. I go on holiday, and Albion get beat. So we did have a tweet from someone saying your your your, your sort of holiday allowances is banned now until the uh, until the until the end of the season. But Coxie, it was a defeat at at St Andrews. There's a lot of different talking points to go over, but we've got to start in in one place. Now I was uh I was just having a beer at this time where I was scrolling through Twitter and said, Oh, penalty blues. And then all the videos started coming through on social media about how horrifically, horribly, awfully bad the penalty decision for Birmingham was. Um just talk to me about, you know, when it happened, the build up I've seen a few tweets saying, you know, people were gobsmacked in the press box or in in the ground. Just recall yeah. Friday night and that that first half shocker from the referee. <laughs> yeah, it was strange. I think I've tweeted once or twice. It was, and, and told a few people actually. I'm trying to forget about it. I, I am actually. I'm trying to forget about it and get over. Got to talk it. about uh, it, mate. This but, is therapy. We've got to talk but, about I'm it. I'm struggling. Yeah, <laughs> I I just um, qualify this by saying I, I really dislike talking about referees and VAR chats. Are awful, and I find it all very tedious. You know, it's it's 
it's hard jobs hardest job out there um so i i don't like just hammering them and i thought you know i'd rather talk about footy and and not referees but it was the the weirdest and strangest and worst penalty call i've ever i've ever seen live in in my years watching football doing this job um i just <laughs> it when it happened i just saw it coming together i saw maybe two legs from Kipra, which I think is obviously why it's been given in the end. But I, I thought, well, I just thought like everyone always oh, that a corner or a goal kick. Both sets of players were arguing over whether it was a goal kick, whether it was a corner. Same with the fans in the stands. You know, the Blue Noses wanted a corner. Obviously, Albion thought it was a goal kick. And straight away, I looked at the ref out of interest. And um, straight away, he pointed to the spot. You know, no, no second thought. He wasn't messing around with that decision. And um, so I, I clocked immediately that he'd given a pen. But honestly, it took a lot of the ground, a good 10 seconds, the, the home end to start celebrating the penalty because they all probably initially booed the goal kick. But they yeah. thought the referee had obviously pointed for a goal kick rather than a penalty spot. Um, surreal, really. And then when it dawned upon most of us in the press box around me, um, there were a couple of sort of more, more neutrals behind some of the national guys. They, they were sort of making little cases as to why it could have been a a penalty, you know, the follow through or the fact it was two legs, but oh, I mean, I just I couldn't quite get my head around it really. And then, you know, it wasn't until the post match press conference with Carlos Corbran where he talked about how um, we saw replays, but obviously not not too many while we were covering the game and how how Cedric Kipre had slipped, lost his footing and slipped into it, and the Blues player as well slipping. You know, you got two players sort of losing their footing, slipping, coming together and. It's it's a disastrous call. It, 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 you can always tell how bad or good a decision is, especially if it's a TV game, especially because you will know as well as me, Johnny, when you're covering a game live and it's on TV and everyone not there watching at home on TV will reply to your tweet saying, no, this is what happened mm. because because our view from the stands isn't perfect, is it? We could be however many yards away from an incident. And sometimes we're relying on monitors in the press box. You don't always get a replay, blah, blah, blah. And you get you get put right by the people watching it on all angles on on TV at home. But um, straight away, one of my first tweets was, "Oh yeah, I didn't want to go that strong, having seen it live from my face. Like that's a, that's a ridiculous call. You know, I need to see it again, type thing." But as soon as I put that out there, I got so many replies telling me it was the worst thing they'd ever seen. And and then the replays start dropping on online, and you're like, "You wow!" And and then you know, it was Friday night, so it was the only game on, but social media was just packed with. You know, neutrals, fans of all clubs, just mm. aghast at the decision, really, and saying, "God, you know, this is right up there with the worst we've seen." Obviously, it was in a week of refereeing drama, wasn't it? After what happened with VAR and Spurs, Liverpool, um, and yeah, the, the gravity of how bad it was quickly hit home. Um, however, um, we'll get onto this, Johnny. It, you know, it wasn't the excuse for it wasn't the reason or excuse for Albion losing the game, but it had a big bearing, no doubt. You know, Albion start the game well. That happens and it changes the momentum, changes the uh, direction of the game, the mood. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was a real blow when it when it comes to the game itself. It is a it is a shocking call and it just don't. He made it quickly, didn't he? he? Made it really quickly and could he have given given him a few more seconds thinking time? Perhaps he was obviously as sure as sure can be because of how quickly he gave it. So, um, but it, it was a strange. I mean, any Albion fan that was was there, two thousand Albion fans in the away and there will will concur. It was odd because it, it was a real, real strange 
feeling around the place for five, ten seconds before everyone had, had realised what on earth had happened. And um, yeah, like it eventually ended up being part of what cost Albion. But you know, we get onto the second goals. No real excuses with that, really. Um, it's just poor play, but uh, costly. And Albion and, and Corbran feel it's about time one or two went their way. I would say. Yeah, like you said, there. You know, I'm not going to ask this question because decisions have gone against West Brom, but we see decisions every week. You know, we see VAR used in the Premier League, and I'll I'm going to give my opinion on VAR in a minute because I don't wholeheartedly like it for certain things. But is there an argument to use it or to explore use it in the Championship? Because we hear this phrase all the time with with technology. Um, clear and obvious. That was as clear and obvious of an error from the referee as you will ever see. Just uh, aside from Kipper might have gone in a bit rash, but it's not a penalty because the guy slipped over. It's not a penalty in a million years, you know. So the question is: is given what's on offer, you know, given the the financial stakes of the championship and getting to the Premier League, is it time that it's used in the second tier? I uh, I am mixed on the, what my opinion is on this, and I can't quite decide. However, that however, the, I think the key point you make there, Johnny, is what's at stake, um, the finances. The same in the Premier League, you know, you talk about European qualification and the finances there. It's too much riding on on these things. Why well, the Championship playoff final used to be built the hundred million game, didn't it? The most important game in football. That's what promotions worth. Um, there's a hell of a lot riding on these these things these decisions um so i think that's a really really strong argument for it um my point and opinion with var um i it's, it's a double-edged sword isn't it it's like that it's weighing up the pros and cons as i mean we're talking about it from a football reporter's point of view um i suppose you've got a a leg in either camp johnny really being i mean being a an Albion fan as well as as covering them. Um, it's enjoyable covering football in the Championship without VAR because um, there's no doubt, and I've covered games in the Premier League as well as regularly watching games in the Premier League. VAR partly, or maybe more than partly, has killed some of the spontaneity in football, the emotion when you celebrate a goal. That's yeah. that's sad. That that is sad because it's not the same. Um, yeah, it's, it's not the same and you don't know, you know, you see people, are, even when I'm watching on the telly, you know, every time a goal goes in um, of my team, my, my first thought on the telly is yeah. uh, VAR. And yeah. Even if like to my naked eye, I was like, there's no way that's no way that's going to be offsided or chalked off. I might, there might be something like five, ten seconds earlier that the technology is going to have spotted that, you know, before VAR would never have been, never have been a thing. Um, so it really has, and in the championship, that's still there, that raw emotion and passion and celebration. So I think football fans, when they're hard done by like Albion the other night, have to maybe be careful of what they wish for, because in the championship, they've still got the enjoyment of how it used to be, maybe how it should be, um, that's lost, lost in the Prem. Um, on the flip side of that, as I said at the top, there's there's too there's too much weighing on these. My other big problem with VAR, I mentioned the lack of all that emotion and all you know, this Premier League and the fans suffer. It's 
just about acceptable in my opinion if everything's right now however the the problem is subjective decisions are never going to be right for everyone are they that's what the definition of the word subjective but everything that's black and white has to be right we're paying for this technology by losing the emotion of the game everything has to be right otherwise just bin it off in my opinion um so the same with like goal line technology that failed high profile once didn't it with villa chef chef united um but it works brilliantly you know yes or no offsides yes they can be very very tight millimeters but it's black or white so it has to be correct obviously it wasn't in this case there was a famous wolves game at anfield as well wasn't there when i think wolves scored a good goal that was chalked off wrongly um and liverpool got one in their favor because there wasn't a camera in the right place at anfield or something that's a, a major howler like the one in spurs liverpool like the goal line tech one we're on about but those are kind of um those are the more major incidents few and far between but the var must get the black and whites the offsides the who did the ball come off that kind of stuff they must get it right because they've killed the emotion so we, we need to get that accuracy we deserve that as fans and watchers of the game and people who invest in the game um the major sticking point is so so we're, we're moaning about this albion blues decision and you're right var would i know var's messed up the last couple of weeks but it would have got the correct decision so we on that basis we want it we want the right decisions there's so much riding on it however fans in the championship will have a lesser match day experience because it takes away that you know that moment doesn't it and i don't know what what the average football fan would think about that would they want everything correct or would they want that little wait when a goal goes in to think oh i don't know whether to celebrate or not don't get me wrong some football fans and yeah football fans in the premier league still enjoy scenes after a goal don't they you still see wild celebrations it's not that var's you know made celebrating redundant however it's just taken away that spontaneity moment hasn't it um so yeah that, that's my opinion really i i, I would say overall yes i would be well up for it being introduced to the championship i don't know logistically and financially how easy that would be to do i think pretty you know most of the grounds in the championship are a good standard isn't it that you know the investment would be worth it and possible good enough grounds however um yeah i mean us being at, at games every week and you know regular fans i think would would suffer a bit because of killing the moment however everything has to be right then if the technology comes in yeah i think i'm more along, along the same Along the same lines as, as yourself there, I think some sort of technology I think needs to be looked at. You're quite right in the fact of the black and white decisions. You know, when VAR came in in the Premier League, I always said it won't work. Like you said, it won't work for subjective decisions. It's not cricket. It's not rugby. It's not black or white. And not everything is, is black or, or white, you know, and very plain. Goal line technology where the ball's out of play you know offside should work but the offside rule has been so convoluted by you know people with an mvq in clipboard management in an office it's it, 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 it so humble that's been messed up, yeah doesn't it as well uh, yeah. as well but in terms of so the reason i was against it is i hope i don't sound hypocritical here but the reason i was i've said in the past said on social media it won't work is because someone who might think a tackle is a tackle a foul is a foul Another referee might not think that. So that's not a clear and obvious error. But in terms of Friday's incident, where it is so clear, if that referee has a little monitor on the side of the pitch 
and goes over and looks at it and goes, it's actually, it's not, it's no nowhere near a penalty. The angle I'm looking at it at is that doesn't show the actual incident in its full, you know, full capacity. He would change that. So whether the powers that be need to look at that and think, do we need to just put a monitor on the side of the pitch if there's something that's a little bit the referee's not, you know, not overly convinced about. It. Like you said, there, you give the decision straight away. But if it had waited two or three seconds and look, all these players are appealing for a penalty or a corner kick, uh, a corner kick or a or a goal kick, you know, that common sense should be planted in the referee's head to think maybe it's not a penalty, maybe I need to go and have a look at it. So in terms of that side of things, you know, it's this argument isn't a pointless argument, but I don't think it will happen. You said there financially and logistically. Financially, it won't. I don't think it'll happen in the championship. No, given this, I, I, given, yeah, I disagree. Given, with it. I think eventually it will come in in a few years. Potentially, yeah, potentially. But I think it should, like you say, purely around the financial side of it. You know, West Brom's situation is a little bit, well, not unique at the moment because there are other clubs going through financial struggles. But And those financial struggles haven't been brought on by anything, you know, other than, you know, well, there are little bits, but the owner is the main, the main, you know, one who carries the can for that. But say West Brom are third or seventh going into the last game of the season, and the reason they've missed out is because of, mm. you know, it's not, like you said there, the penalty wasn't given, you know, it wasn't the referee's fault that no one got within 10 yards of Dion Sanderson when he planted a header in the top corner, you know, but the complexion of the game changes and, you know, given the riches that are on offer to get to the Premier League, I think it should be explored. Whether it's implemented, you know, I don't know, but I think it should be explored. But I'm yeah. sure there's fans now going, stop talking about VAR because it's not in the championship, but I think it's well, a valid honest, point to look at given yeah, the fact that yeah, I've yeah. not just been on the end of the Birmingham one. You know, we had the Josh Madger one, which has ruled him out for, you know, two, three months. Um, and there's been, you know, Carlos Corbrand will we'll talk about his reaction, but there has been other instances, you know, where he is has sort of referenced this. Um, Just pick you up on something within within your bit there, mate. Sorry to uh, extend the debate, but I think it's quite interesting. You know, the I think I've heard others say this as well. You know, this this phrase clear and obvious. I think that's a problem as well because the very phrase itself is subjective. Yeah, clear and yeah, obvious. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, some some people thought that that was a foul and a a foul. So, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not clear and obvious. Yeah. I, I suppose it could be if you're applying the letter of the law, as they should be, to it, then they can decide if it's a, you know, if it is a clear and obvious. But there is scope to say, well, the words clear and obvious are, yeah. are subjective. But on the flip side of this, we, we talked about this, I think we talked about it in the press room after Sheffield Wednesday um, or or before, because they were the, just, the tellies were on in the press room and they were talking about the... The Liverpool Tottenham one, and this is just going to be the last point before we do actually go on and talk about other Albion stuff and actually Albion's display. Um, I'm going to make another quick one as well, but carry on. Yeah, in the you know we have the review system in cricket, we have the review system in rugby. Um, I don't think this is not mm. actually from, but we have it in, more in tennis than rugby. You know, the time it takes VAR to make a decision now, you know, if the referees making the decision are the issue, you know, if there is a disputed issue, like for example. Everyone on the touchline, everyone on the, on the pitch for Albion thought that wasn't wasn't a penalty decision. If there was a review system where Albion could go go and look at that, the referee would change his mind. Again, that could be subjective because you could you could ask for a review of a decision, 
and the referee would still make the wrong decision on a certain thing, you know, then you're in a whole different ballpark of a debate. So I think the bottom line is I think it needs to be looked at in the championship, whether it's a full VAR like we see now. There are other versions of VAR, VAR light and, and other things. Whether they're looked at, I don't know. But I know yeah. I know I've mentioned um the VAR taking away the emotion with the, the technology and, and you know we'll have to get over that and the Premier League has got over that. Yeah, there's an also another point to be made here in that the technology works and the system works, but the people using it who are coming to the decisions are still, you know, failing. And I said at the very top, I don't want to hammer or batter referees on this because I find it tedious, but I think, you know, there's some validity there. You know, people using the technology, the system in place. I've heard a lot of people say it's too matey, matey, pally, pally on VAR, the way they talk to them, each other. And we heard the audio from that Spurs game. It was like carnage, wasn't it? Ten people talking at once. Um, all of that, I think, could be could be improved on. I would say, you know, if if we're going to accept the technology, you know, let's let's make the people using it become capable of of using it more fluidly and to better effect. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, I'm sure, like we said, Albion fans are turning their right. Talk talk more about Albion. We'll talk about um, first of all, Coxie. In you know, from what I've read, you know, your pieces and from what I've seen. It was a case of probably standing around at the end of the game going, how have Albion lost 3-1? Despite the fact that there was a bit of poor defending for the one goal and there was an awful penalty decision. Um, all in all, not a not a bad display from Albion, just certain things going to get some rubber the green, not in their favour. Yeah, I thought Albion started the game well, much on top. Yeah, a goal kind of came out of nothing, a bit of, bit of magic, wasn't it, from, from Swifty. But I think for 20 minutes... Albion were comfortably the better team, looked brighter. Um, obviously, that penalty decision changed the complexion of it, and I, I, I'm, Albion didn't recover. They had a couple of moments, you know, tried to get on the ball again, but didn't really recover again till half time for me. And obviously, that's when the, the telling second goal arrived, really, through Sanderson. Um, as you mentioned there, you know, no, no marking from it second phase of a set play after Blues had gone short. Albion had sort of half cleared their line, but that, you know, it's, it's all well and good pushing out as Armin did trying to clear their lines, but you know, two free defenders cannot forget about the the home attackers behind them. Yeah, he had all kinds of space, didn't he? Sanderson probably could have brought it down if he wanted to, and um, and Palmer a little bit off his line, enough for the ball to sort of loop over him a bit. Although it was a powerful header, wasn't it? So, uh, but what I would say is, I thought I, I thought Armin was a better team in the second half. I, I did. Obviously, you know, Gary Gardner comes from the bench for the late free kick to make it 3-1, which is an unjust scoreline. Um, but at 2-1, uh, I thought I'll, I thought I'll be in with a better team. The problem was, it's all well and good being a better team, isn't it? And, you know, having more of the ball, doing, you know, doing some not OK stuff with the ball, I thought, in their approach play, but they didn't create enough. There's one clear chance it fell to the right back to Darnell for, for long and he steered it wide of the far post and that was the moment you kind of knew that was the moment I think he had another header he sent at, um, at John Ruddy but that was the only clear-cut chance and if you're having a decent half football where you're the better team you've got you've got to be doing a bit more to test the, the back line and the keeper um, because Blues will, Blues will be happy for the other team to uh, be the better side say an in inverted quotation marks but um, but ride it out and, and score it you know, kill a third at the end. So, I don't know, I thought, uh, yeah, Blue, Blues are a decent side this season. I, I do think that, obviously, a lot's gone on there since since Friday night. Um, but I, th- I thought with the football, and there was a few neutrals around me in the press box, actually, they were quite taken with how well Albion were, were knocking around and playing it, actually. I thought, thought it looked, certainly until, obviously, Swift 
we'll get onto it, but hobbled off, and that was a massive blow, wasn't it? But I thought we played some some nice football. I don't know how many would would agree with that, um, but the problem was in in the very final moment, wasn't it? The final third looked a little bit toothless, but I'm not going to go too over on that because Albion have scored goals this season. However, attackers are dropping like flies at the moment, aren't they? Mm. And the treatment room's getting a little too busy. Yeah, lace your boots up, Coxie. Lace your boots up. I've seen you. <laughs> I've seen you score a penalty at the Hawthorns before, mate. I um, get a nosebleed when I enter the final <laughs> third. Don't worry about that. On Swift, we'll discuss the injury and the you know that that long growing injury list at the moment. Um, oh, in a second. But John Swift, six goals in six games. They're going to look at this. Or sorry, six goals in six shots. I was reading the other day, um, which is you know his finish on on Friday it was absolutely marvellous. Um, and he's he's. By far and away, Albert's best player this season so far. What I'm going to ask you, Coxie, is it's all caveated by whether Albion get taken over, etc. But we know that the vultures were circling in the summer. The vultures will probably circle in January if the club is not in different hands. As much as we like to see John Swift scoring goals and Albion players doing well, you know, there are individuals that are playing well for Albion at the moment, you know, but the main example is Swift. Does it elevate him, put him in the shop window more? The fact that he is at the moment probably one of the most informed players in the championship. Oh, I would say so. Um, if Albin's ownership situa- situation isn't resolved by then, and um, I mean time's ticking, isn't it? What are we mid October more or less? You know, what, so what's that? Two two months away, um, two and a half months away from the window. Um, I would say so. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? You want players playing well, getting you towards the right end of the table where you need mm-hmm. to be, but it's yeah. it's going to it's going to advertise your talent and it's going to need your your talent playing well. So um, there was interest in Swift in the summer, uh, reported on it. It came quite late. Some of the some of the approaches and offers came quite late. And just something to uh, uh, listeners will be listening to this on a Wednesday, but we've actually got some some interesting uh, quotes from John Swift to come in the next day or two. Uh, that we we uh, picked up from him before his injury, actually, well worth a read. I, I won't give anything more away than that. Um, but I think it's inevitable, really. In, interesting in the summer just gone, and you would say that's on that was on John Swift's reputation, wasn't it? One of the top creative technical players in the championship from his time at Reading came to Albion, high-profile free transfer. I would say had an underwhelming to mixed first season. Numbers weren't enough, were they? Um, some few and far between, but he, he was left out sometimes. Some games he would sort of drift through without being noticed. And maybe that's what you get from his sort of player. But he, he openly admitted this himself, by the way. You know, need, need to improve badly on last season. And he has, let's be honest, some some great numbers so far this term, which was the big thing. But his all-round play, again, when we spoke to him a few weeks ago prior to injury, he said he still wanted to improve his all-round game, didn't he? And, and he needs to if you're playing under Carlos Corbran. He demands that. You can't drift through a game and score the winner. Okay, yeah, we'll take it. You've got the winner, but it's not enough. You need to have everything to your game under a head coach like Corbran. And I think he started to do that, or, or sadly had started to do that before this injury. And um, yeah, it probably increases the attractors tenfold, doesn't it? When you look at him being one of the division's top scorers from, you know, number 10 from the left wing role, uh, creators as well. I think the Preston game, he was involved in the first three goals before it went 4-0. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a, a realistic proposition. And no, Albion won't 
want to lose him. Of course, I think he'd be in a bracket of players Corbyn wouldn't want to lose. However, if the situation doesn't improve and, um, you know, offers still need to be taken, you know, seriously, I think he'll be one of them. However, he'll have a price and it will have to be met. And it would be interesting to see if, you know, what that price was and how far, you know, clubs targeting him would be willing to go. Um, it'd be interesting, actually. If he carries on, he's not he's not expected back now, is he, till, what, end of November, which realistically, you know, after that new November international break, which realistically gives him a month of action before the transfer window opens. Obviously, you know, that's assuming the ownership situation doesn't change. And, you know, were he to score another handful, you know, he's got six goals where he get to get towards 10, there would be, um, yeah, you'd think that there could well be a scramble, actually. So, Definitely one to watch. Um, it's hard to say he'll be alone. I mean, we, we don't know. Other players have played well so far this season. He's not alone, but he's a standout one, like like you say. And because of that interest in the summer, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And and um, yeah, maybe I think I think there could well be certainly if he carries it on things to test Albion's resolve, and and that will be interesting. And that's as we said all summer, really, Johnny, isn't it? The, the harsh reality continuing. Yeah, in terms of his injury, you know, we know he's out now with a muscle injury. You know, we get this question all the time. You know, Alvin have had a, a, a sort of a few muscle injuries and, and injuries of that nature under, you know, Carlos Corbran and the rain. And fans have asked if he's anything to do with what's been done on the training field. I think that still, you know, we've given this answer before, but I think it's probably still a little bit harsh. I think it's Alvin being out of luck with this latest one. You know, you look at the other ones, Josh Madge's an ankle, DK's, you know, Achilles. Um, which are you know, related to you know obviously muscle injury, but I think it's a little bit harsh. Madge is an impact one, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I wasn't at Bristol City. I was no, away, it, was. And it was obviously that that, that penalty challenge um, that wasn't wasn't a penalty was uh, was the result of that. Um, Sarmiento is also ankle. However, that's the player he is, his situation, his background. He looks so far at the age of whatever he is, 21, to be a player who picks up knocks. That's not related to Albion. That's the player he is. And the challenge for him, Albion Brighton, is to overcome that. If he's going to have a career his talent deserves, he's going to have to come over that. And I think we've got some core brand quotes on Sarmiento to come in a, in a little while um, to, to read over the break that, that delve into that, actually. Um, something he's got to overcome because he... The, the talent he's got deserves to be able to play, and if he's low, if he can't take the load, he's, he's going to have to start being able to. Um, simple as that, really. And yeah, muscle ones can go any time, can't they? Like the Swift, you wouldn't say Swift. You know, did he pick up a knock last season? I'm trying to remember. Played enough football over his time at Reading. He's not an injury-prone yeah. player, is he? So no, I, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, there was a point last season, wasn't there, where up to eight, nine, ten injuries, but we're we're not there quite yet this season just on that I've written it in the last few days actually I know it was something Corbyn spoke of when I was away I've been quietly made a new appointment didn't they to their medical staff um Rafa Aranda uh, a fellow Spaniard of, of Corbyn somebody he, he knew actually from the sort of Valencian region and actually was a un, uh, lecturer at the at the university uh, around Valencia while also working in football I think he'd worked at clubs in Spain um also over overseas I think his last work was in in China, I think. Um, and he's come on kind of as a, as a medical advisor, really, and his specialist is injury prevention. Not been in the door long, uh, but the hope is, I mean, Carlos Corbin has some quotes from him saying he's the best around at this in Corbin's eyes. So 
hopefully by the time he's bedded in, you know, feet under the table, the ideal world is this starts to happen less. And, and you'd like to think now with someone like that in and working with Tony Strudwick, obviously director of medical and, and the sports science staff, that there's enough in place there now to be doing everything feasibly possible. Certainly with, you know, Rafa Aranda's, you know, area of expertise to be avoiding these things. However, in football, in sport, some injuries aren't avoidable, are they? That's that's the, the simple bottom line. Albion work hard in training, they do, but, you know, Carlos isn't stupid, obviously, when he gets to a busy week or a busy run of midweek games. He, he doesn't, you know, drill them on the training ground every day. They don't run and run and run until they can't run anymore. They spend a, a hell of a lot of time in the, you know, in, in the classroom, really, as it is, you know, watching footage, studying tactics. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't read too much into any anything behind the scenes leading to it yet. Two more points Birmingham related before we move on to anything else. Now, John Swift is out. Um, obviously, Jamie Sarmiento's had a knock. You would imagine now, Coxie, given the fact that Swift is out, that West Brom can't really afford to play Wallace as a striker. Brandon Thomas Asante will probably have to ply that front line on his own. How, you know, just give us one example of how you think Corbrand may set up you know, looking toward, obviously, there's no game this weekend, but Plymouth following that, you know, with the options that he will have or will not have available, what, you know, what what way can he go? Is he going to have to look at a tweaking formation? You know, what's what's the options? We've seen, you know, my first thought was, obviously, Malumbi's out of the team. He comes back in. Alex Mowat can play in a more advanced position. That's an option. Yeah. You know, we've talked, we're going to talk about Tom Fellows, you know, in terms of chances and potential and, and what Corbran said about him being a, a championship or someone who can do well in the championship. How how would you approach it now if you were uh, if you were Carlos? Uh, I don't think this will go down um, too well. But the head coach has said recently, uh, prior to Swift injury, that at the moment, because of the DK Magic situation, he sees Wallace and Thomas Sante as as the two striking options. Mm. And when it gets busy. And Thomas Sante isn't in the best form, has he? He hasn't scored for a while, had a couple of tough games, um, struggled against Sheffield Wednesday that night, didn't he? So they're going to be rotated still in that role. Thomas Sante can't play it every game just because he's the only striker. And Wallace will be used. And like at Preston, I thought Wallace did it very well and can do it very well. Now, he's better on the out wide, of course he is, but I think he's going to continue as an option. And that... That is only that can only happen if the availability availability elsewhere is there. Corbyn said that. So Grady Dean Garner coming back, for example, was a big boost because he can play out wide, allowing Wallace to move up. Um, so we need to cross everything that Dean Garner comes back from DR Congo duty. Uh, okay, you know that would be a disaster, wouldn't it? If he if he picked up a knock in any of those two friendlies he's got coming up. Um, because of Swift's loss, obviously Swift was playing further out towards the left in the. Um, in the sort of three-four-three um, system, uh, Tom Fellows comes right into it. I know we get onto him, but I thought he was good at Blues, as as I've written, as the head coach has said. I think he becomes a a good option now. Good in pre-season, good at Blues. Corbrand's quotes were quite strong, weren't they, at St Andrews after the game? Um, basically said, think he's going to be someone that West Brom fans are going to see a hell of a lot more of now because of the situation, and also said, think he's going to become a very good Championship player. Now, I don't think he'd say that on a whim. Um, and, yeah, I, look, whether we get to 
Plymouth the first game back, isn't it? Uh, whether we get there and fellows is in the starting eleven. You know, I'm I'm not saying that for definite. You know, it could well be Thomas Asante leading the line, flanked by Wallace and Dean Garner. That's that's the more likely thing, isn't it? But it's a Saturday, Tuesday, back to back. So we could well see fellows starting either of those, maybe on the Tuesday, um, just to allow, as I say, Thomas Asante Wallace rotation, Wallace going up front, perhaps. But I, I, I'm a fan of your idea, Johnny. I, I, I wouldn't mind a world where it's uh, Okai and Malumbi with, with yeah. Moet just ahead of them. Uh, or, does it, like... or does it also lend itself to, you know, we look at Matty Phillips has been playing as a left wing back. Given the situation, yeah, does Matty yeah, Phillips yeah, push yeah, forward yeah, into that front yeah. three? Connor Townsend then gets back in the team at left back or left wing back. As, as a back. Well, yeah, yeah, as, as a left wing back or, you know, suggestions of a back four. Back four, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that possibly moves Peters to left back rather than Townsend coming back in. But I think I, if Townsend plays, do we see Peters in a centre-back two? I'm, I'm not so sure. doesn't suit him quite as well as a three. But there are other options, aren't there? Ajay and Kipre, Bartley and Kipre, Bartley and Ajay. So I've been stocked in other positions to get over this. And the Phillips shout is is a good one, actually. We, we mustn't forget his natural role is, is out wide as a winger and how well a season. Phillips is having so um, as much as we say you know fellows can come in as another wide wide option um, Matty Phillips is there and ready made to go isn't he however he's sort of doing so well at wing back in my opinion you know a bit of if it ain't broke don't fix it albeit Albion lost um, I yeah I, I, I'm happy seeing Phillips out there anywhere at the moment I think he's doing excellently at wing back I think he'd do a, a great job wide of the front three Actually, you think he's he's been so sort of creative, it might unlock even more from him, either side of the striker actually at, at, at the minute. So that that could well be a not a happy mistake, but a, a good outcome in this in this scenario. And um, and Townsend back in the side, but but we'll see. Um, back forward surprised me a little bit. I think Corbran's a fan of how this back three back fives work in this season, and I think he'd be slightly at pains to to change it like that. Um, However, he has spoken that he, he likes to be able to do both. You know, he likes to have the option there to change yeah, it as, as game, game demands. So, yeah, the, the useful thing, Johnny, is there are a couple of options there, despite what is that now? One, two, three, four attackers out injured. There are still options, and that's important, but they are becoming thinner by the minute. And Albion really need Dean Garner to get through the international break unscathed. Yeah. We'll uh, keep an eye. our fingers crossed on that. Just before we go to advert and, and bring you that interview with Brendan Batson and talk about your questions, just want to do a bit of a loan watch, Coxie, in terms of a youngster's loan watch, really. Um, you did, Albion fans would have seen some of the quotes we ran in the Express and Star um, from Grimsby Town boss Paul Hurst talking about Jamie Andrews, who seems to be having a very successful loan spell um, with the, the League Two club, um, who were promoted a couple of seasons ago, back into the Football League from the National League. He's he's broken into their side. He's doing really well. He's impressing. Um, as are a few of the other loanies as well. Um, Jova Malcolm's at, at Cheltenham. Hasn't found a net yet, but we'll forgive him for that because Cheltenham only scored one goal all season. Um, <laughs> yeah, they were about 13 games, didn't they? Yeah, Mo Fowl scored three in, in about nine games for, for Doncaster and seems to be, he, he's certainly playing in the front two and doing really well. Ethan Ingram, we've heard good reports about Ethan Ingram from Salford. He's doing really well getting out and, and some game time. Zach Ashworth, someone, someone that fans were sort of not happy with the, the deal that Albion made with Bolton earlier this summer with a with a um, an, an option to buy in terms of Ashworth. He hasn't played as much 
um, football. Um, Rayan Tullock, someone you know, I wrote about a few weeks ago, the sort of forgotten man at Albion, has, has scored for Bradford and, and it's playing a little bit at that level. So, Coxie, the first thing I want to do is not praise the club, but you know, we've seen in seasons gone by at Albion where they haven't sent youngsters out on loan to go and get this valuable experience. But at the moment, it seems to be working. You know, we've talked about Tom Fellows, who has now come in and, yes, all right, given circumstances, he looks like he's going to get his Albion chance. But from someone in terms of Fellows who went off to Crawley with a lot of Albion fans who had had a glimpse of him, thinking that he's not going to cut it. He's come back from Crawley, you know, a tough season at a club like Crawley who weren't doing very well. And now he's in and amongst it. You know, Mm. he's... He's surely got to be the beacon for those other fellow youngsters to come back and, and maybe have a bash at trying to do the same. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think of, of the crop you've just all mentioned there of that age, Fellows and Caleb Taylor appear to be at the... And Taylor, yeah, of course, Taylor. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Carlos Corbin spoke about quite recently uh, to me, I think, um, how you know, Fellows and Taylor were the ones decided to stay at the club to stay around it, to boost the numbers. You know, Corban's sort of saying, we've only got X amount of outfield players, so we had to boost it, you know, for match day squads. Now there's nine subs available with two youngsters. And, yeah, they both had good loans, played a lot of games, those two. So, uh, and obviously Corban got a good viewing of them in pre-season, like he did with all of those loans. And he decided those two are the ones, you know, to to bolster the centre-half department, of which there's a you know, good few options and the wide departments. Um, where Albion couldn't quite get another one over the line out there in those wide positions. So, so Fellows and Taylor, important this season. I know we haven't seen Caleb Taylor yet, uh, but Corbin was just weighing up the importance of having him training with Albion's system and as an option compared to playing in a back four in League One every game again. And the back four might not be how Albion want him, that kind of thing. You're going out and playing under a different idea. Did all of that last season. Couldn't have played any more last season, could he? 50 games. So more value in him being around it this season, playing in the Cups. You know, his, his time and chance will come when a couple of more injuries bite in the back line. I'm, I'm sure of it. So, and you're right, it's happening for fellows now. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and the others, you know, some of those desperately needed to go, didn't they, uh, go out. Zach Ashworth got his chance at Burton last season and took it well with the Brewers. However, really not happening for him, is it, at Bolton? He's not started a, a League One game yet, which has surprised me. He scored... His first appearance, it was a winner in, in the Cup, but his only starts have actually come in the EFL Cup, I believe. So, doesn't seem to be quite working out. I know Bolton have got another left-back ahead of him in the pecking order there. So, if that's still the situation come January, I think that one needs a rethink, does it really? It's not doing anyone any favours, certainly not Ashworth being out there, not playing. Um, and, yeah, good, really, really happy to see Ethan Ingram playing every game um, and, and, and thriving up there with Salford. Um, really, it was his first loan. Really needed it, sort of always kicking his heels, always the one that was sort of kept around it and not permitted alone. But it's happened for him now, and he seems to be seems to be going well. The other ones are up and down, aren't they? You say Malcolm Fowl attacking options there, Fowl more in the goals, and that that's good to see. You know, we, we saw quite a bit of Mo Fowl over preseason, didn't we? And it's hard to judge, isn't it? It's hard to judge in preseason a mixed side, but to me, he didn't look like a striker who was ready for the championship to be a third-choice striker or a fourth-choice. He looked like someone who needed to go and have another loan. And he's gone to Don, Doncaster in League Two. And he's scoring goals. Previously, lo- had a loan in the National League. And he so progression. See how he does between now and January. Hopefully, he can stay there for the season. And then we reassess. You know, he, he signed an extension last summer. So, 
does he then take a League One loan in January or next season? It's one of those. And Joe Van Malcolm's obviously enjoying a League One loan. It's a good move for him. However, Cheltenham are where they are this season. Quite an incredible goalless run of, what was it, 13 games before they scored. So, yeah. listen, he's getting the experience, but it's not a particularly brilliant one at the moment. Um, however, at least he's playing. And it's a bit it's a bit hit and miss for Ryan Tullock, isn't it? Um in and out the Bradford side, they've had a change of manager with Mark Hughes going, haven't they? So we'll have to see how he beds in and settles under under whoever takes over at Valley Parade. Um, but they're all out there, sort of playing in most cases, and that's that's the most you can ask for. You know, we we can't be naive and say they've all got a future at Albion, have they? The reality is of those ones out on loan we've just mentioned, maybe one will. If that, I, I don't know. And, you made a good point when we've been chatting, Johnny, and we're going to get onto it of Albion's financial situation, needing players like Fellows, like Caleb Taylor, to have a first-team future with the financial situation as it is. As and um, and these, these loans are priceless for that. You know, Caleb Taylor's development would have improved tenfold because of Cheltenham last season. Tom Fellows is with Crawley, likewise. Even though he went there, didn't score, didn't. Managed to get many assists as, as you'd want from a winger. You know, I know he had to play a bit of wing back there, but just the experience of the the rough and tumble, you know, senior football, three points being worth everything on the line would have helped him no end when he came on last week at Blues. And we were very excited from him in, in pre-season, weren't we, fellas? Looked just everything you want from a winger, quick, direct, attack-minded, happy to have a shot. And um, I hope we see it all from him the other side of the international break. On the finances, you know, these loans now, are these loans as important for Albion in terms of, you know, there may be a time, well, you know, we haven't spent a lot of money anyway, but or haven't spent any money in, in recent times. But is they, are they as important for Albion in terms of next season, what the situation might look off the field, you know, having to bring these youngsters through? Is it as important to Albion as they are to the future of of these youngsters who want to progress in football? You know, there's yeah the, the loans the loans more most of the time are the benefit for the player, you know, with the hope of bringing a little bit of a benefit for the club and the first team. Whereas now it's going to almost potentially be a necessity for the club rather than yeah, as think, alongside hope I, for the player. I think so. As I touched on there, I mean, the thing the thing is as well, yeah. While Albion remain a Championship club they aspire to be at the right end of it. However, I do realise as the as time goes on and as the finances worsen so until a proposed takeover, um, the challenge to get up there and compete for, for promotion becomes trickier. However, you know, West Bromwich Albion in the Championship should be at the right end of it. Um, so that brings with it the challenges that these academy graduates still have to be good enough. You know, Caleb Taylor eventually has to be a good enough Championship starter for Albion. Can Tom Fellows become a good enough winger to start for Albion when he's competing against Jed Wallace, John Swift, Grady Dean Garner? In an ideal world, eventually, yes. You know, that any of those players we've talked about out on loan there, you would say at the moment they're slightly further behind in their development. Two, three seasons down the line, could they be starting for Albion in the Championship? Quite possibly, because they develop and become good enough and because Albion's context changes, doesn't it? who knows where Albion are going to be in 12 months let alone two or three seasons it's hard it's impossible to say isn't it because of the uncertainties because we don't know the the face or the clout of the next ownership yet um but 
while that uncertainty looms, the importance of those young players, you know, becomes ever greater. I would say. Yeah. No. It's um... however, however, they they need to be of a level, don't they? They can't yeah. just because no, of a, course. A team full of academy graduates who aren't good enough, and you know, I'm not saying these players, these young players aren't good enough. That's not what I'm saying. But Albion can't plummet down the pyramid because they're they're playing youngsters. You know, and, uh, yeah, Albion's academy is a, is, a, is a good one. We all know it produces players, and yes, in recent years, a lot of them have been poached, and hopefully that gets stopped. And uh, hopefully there are more on the way through in your Whitwells and your Mufambas and and others. So, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Good luck to all those guys. You know, keep doing what you're doing on your your loan spells. Right time for an advert, as always, the Baggish Broadcast, and all our podcasts here at the Express and Star are brought to you by that man, the Kettle and Toaster Man. Graded product specialist over on Thorns Road in Briley Hill, who I've got, like I've said numerous times, mountains of products. Um, I would, I wouldn't like to have millions. Well, not maybe not millions, hundreds of thousands of superb products in that massive warehouse um, in Briley Hill. Coxie, do you know what we're going to talk about this week? I've, I've said I might need a new kettle soon. I've said be microwaves on the blink. Fancy a new toaster? I'd look at some toasters the last week or so. There is a beauty of a toaster. Not only is it it's this dome-shaped toaster. Yeah, this is this is how boring my life gets now. I love talking about appliances. <laughs> um, but there's a toaster, the funky, the funky appliance company. That should draw you in straight away. I've got a chrome funky four-slice toaster for just thirty-five pounds. So if you love a bit of love a bit of toast, or if you want any products, kitchen products, they've got everything there: cookware, kitchenware, you name it, cleaning stuff. Some great products down there. Beldre, Hoover, Hotpoint, Kenwood, Morphe, Richard, Salter, much more. You name it. They've probably got it down in that warehouse in Thorns Road in Briley Hill. So if you want to have a look at what they've got on offer, pick yourself up a, a little bit of a great deal. Um, head to kettleandtoasterman.co.uk or, they, as we said, they're on Thorns Road in Briley Hill. Right. Uh, as we said, this episode is going to be a little bit longer than usual um, because we had a well, I had a really good sit down with, with Brendan Batson, Albion legend Brendan Batson, part of the Three Degrees, um, whose book, The Third Degree, um, is out now. He's written his autobiography alongside um, journalist and uh, author as well, Chris Lepkowski, who's got the Liquidator podcast, um, who you'll know very well. I sat down with him to talk about it. We had a little bit of an interruption, really, just before the, the interview started. My dog had a bit of a fit and started barking, so I got him to just be quiet because I was interviewing an Albion legend and I didn't want it to disturb the interview. Anyway, halfway through, Brendan's dog started uh, barking and, and yapping and howling. So there'll be a little bit of a uh, dog noise interference um, in this interview. But um, ego is what, uh, what Brendan had to say about how his book come around and, uh, and, and the stories that he's, he's told in his new autobiography, The Third Degree. I'm delighted to be joined by Albion legend Brendan Batson and journalist Chris Lepkowski, um, who has wrote Brendan's uh, Brendan's new autobiography. Um, so it's great to to have them with us today on the on the Baggies broadcast. Brendan, I'll, I'll come to you first, as it, it's uh, the book's all about all about yourself. Um, I just want to go back, really. Sort of when did the the idea of a an autobiography first sort of service? I know as a former player, it's probably one of the first port calls for a lot of players when they finish playing. But how did it come around for yourself? Yeah, good morning, Johnny. Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, well, it started some time ago, really. My uh, kids kept on asking me, am I going to do a book? Cyril, when he bought, bless him, when he bought out his book, he said to me not long afterwards, I should have, bring out my own book because I've got a slightly different story to tell. And really, I suppose going back, uh, my sister-in-law in Grenada, I'm from Grenada, my sister-in-law's there, 
she decided to do a book on her dad, my father-in-law, who passed away, bless him, at 97. And when I read his story, I realized I didn't know a lot about, I didn't know enough about him until I read the book. So I put all that together and my kids and my grandkids kept on pestering saying, why don't you just make a record? So really, I suppose it's really a record for my kids, my grandkids and my family more than anything else. And um, thankfully, Chris decided to help me out with it. And because uh, I did try and draft it myself and I was hopeless. So I thought I better employ somebody who knows what they're doing. So that's what I got uh, Chris to do for me. Good stuff, Chris. I imagine that was, you know, knowing, you know, following your work, knowing you're an avid baggy, that must have been pretty sort of bit of a proud moment, really, to, to help write the book for a, for a bona fide Albion legend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'd I'd had two books previously, and somebody once told me that, that writing a book is a little bit like running a marathon. Once you've done that first marathon, you want to do another one, and and you you want to keep going. And I felt that after the last book that I I wanted to do something different. Um, and I actually know Brendan and I've known Brendan for a long time and we were sort of brought together by a, a mutual friend who who suggested um or a mutual friend from the former players association Jeff Snape and um Brendan and I met we we thought it'd be a, a good way um a good idea to to do something um and I have to say yes it was a privilege it was an honor um and it really helps that Brendan had a, a wonderful and varied life to talk about, really. And, you know, it, it was a, a great project to, to be involved in. Yeah. Brendan, you mentioned there about, you know, I suppose a lot of Albion fans will buy the book to, to hear about, you know, Hope Cyril, so. Reg- Cyril, Reg- <laughs> Cyril Regis, Laurie Cunningham, you know, that, that fantastic team you were part of, you know, and all your all your footballing memories. But your reference there, sort of your family in Grenada, is there a large chunk of the book which is about that and about your life and about sort of your, your origins and sort of where you come from? Yeah, it is about me starting off. Um, obviously, I was born in Grenada, my family are Trinidadians, then coming over to England, my mum uh, making a bold decision. Uh, football finding me, really, because I'd never seen football until I came to England. I was nine years old, never seen, never seen, heard about football, but never seen it. So it really is my journey. Um, and fortunately for me, uh, I've mentioned several times that football found me in a way. And it's given me the life I've had. I'm forever grateful for that. And to this day, I'm still involved in sports and particularly a football side of it. And it really, um, it's not just about my playing. It is about the family, um, my wife, my late wife, uh, my kids, and, and really a, a little bit of touching on my life as opposed to just going over how many games I've played and highlights of the games, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's a record that my kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, hopefully, will be able to um, look back on it and say, well, that's my part. Yeah. It was um, Just give us a sense of the timeline. So, you obviously, you come up with that idea. You know, how long from your first meeting with Chris to, you know, when you had that hard coffee in your hand, how, how long do these journeys take? Sort of question for both of you, really. I think Chris will probably be um, more accurate than me because in between, from the time I met, I can't even tell you when it was when we first started talking about it, I was in the UK. Um, I live in Spain. Um, so we were doing some of the meetings, obviously, on, on Zoom or Teams, whatever it was. And then I went traveling for six months. I was back in the Caribbean for six months. I took my grandson with me, eldest, who actually celebrated his 21st birthday whilst in Grenada with me. He spent three months with me. 
I celebrated my 70th birthday whilst I was in Grenada and we were island hopping a little bit. And um, so a lot of it was done with, um, uh, I think it was a five hour difference, which can play havoc um, with, with scheduling, but a lot of it was done whilst I was away. And then we met up again when I came back to England and it just seemed to go, it went on for a while, but on reflection, it was done quite um, in a short space of time, I suppose, for the, for the, the amount of information that we got in the book. It, it was relatively short, but Chris will have a better idea um, than me, probably. Some unconventional hours then, Chris, judging by the time <laughs> differences. Yeah, I, I can assure you there was no country hopping for myself. I, <laughs> although, although I did move from one part of the West Midlands to another during that period. I was having a few run punches at the time. Yeah, it was, I mean, I guess the 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 era we live in where you can use zoom and teams made it a lot easier um especially as i didn't get an invite to the caribbean or to spain but that that's another story <laughs> um but no i mean it, it was a good couple of years really i think what really helped actually is that brendan um handed over um a scrapbook that i think for a long time he didn't know he had he, his mother had lovingly put it together and there were a few gaps I, I felt in Brendan's life, and that really helped uh, fill some of those holes and those gaps really in Brendan's story. Um, I've been guarding it with my life since, I have to add. Really? Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and that was a really big help. But I mean, you know, we, we sort of started it during the, the, the tail end of COVID, and obviously there were certain sanctions about how we could meet where we could meet what we could do um but you know in this era now of, of being able to talk to people as we are now via teams it's a it's a lot easier than maybe a few years ago when we would have been phoning at each other yeah brendan just on on sort of various parts of the book you know we we ran three excerpts you know in last week's express and star you know what were the few what were the hardest parts of the book you know Chris mentions there you've had such a varied life you know coming over to the UK you know I think in some of the pieces last week we talked about you know Sil Regis, Laurie Cunningham you know your views on Ron Atkinson you know the racism you suffered in the game which is you know well publicised were there were there any bits that were particularly tough to sort of revisit that you might not have revisited for for quite a long time? Well I suppose the obvious one um, if you read the book is about my wife's illness and her sudden passing you know within six and a half months so that that is always going to be difficult I mean no matter what I do in life from now until I, I fall off a mortal coil there'll always be a traumatic period in my life and I suppose going back at the time when um, my story isn't particularly unique in the sense of um, people coming over from the Caribbean around that era you know talk about the Windrush era um, just revisiting how what a struggle it was for my mum who in fact was a single mum bringing up three kids and we were split up. We were split so often. I've got elder brother and sister. Um, we always seem to be split. So they were born in Trinidad. When my mum was having me, she went back to Grenada. Then my brother was off to Antigua for a couple of years. I mean, I even forgot that I hadn't seen him for two years. Uh, he left Grenada, got to Antigua, stayed with an uncle, an uncle of ours, and I didn't meet up with him again until we got to Trinidad. Uh, I, had to, I had to actually check with him to make sure I hadn't got it wrong. Well, I did get. I did get it wrong because I thought he'd come back to Grenada, but we didn't actually meet until we met up again in Trinidad. So I didn't see him for two years. And I think just, I mean, the, on, on a reflective eye, I realised how split we were as a family, my mum and my brother and sister. 
And we weren't together permanently as such until we met up again in England. So we were, my brothers and myself were sent to England in 62. My mum promised she would join us after two years with my sister. So she, they came in 64. And that's when really I felt we were starting a journey off as a proper family, all together with nothing on the horizon that we were going to be split. So it sort of evokes memories which were um, not always pleasant at times. But central to that was my mum explaining everything to us, letting us feel that we were uh, not being abandoned in any way. Uh, She was going to keep us safe. But this was uh, the way of achieving that in having to be split for periods of time and then get together again in England. So, yeah, it it does um, evoke certain memories, which sometimes are buried deep within you because there's no need to revisit it. And then suddenly... uh, when my son, Chris, sort of eked out those sort of stories. I mean, and it, it's like opening a floodgate then. Mm-hmm. And you just, you know, I just ramble, ramble, ramble on for a bit. And, yeah, before you know it, uh, we've got a book. Yeah. Was there any, any, you know, memories that were, you know, particularly lovely to to, to revisit as well? Obviously, you know, your oh, playing yeah. days at Albion, fantastic. You know, I'm sure friendships and stuff we mentioned there, Cyril, Laurie Cunningham, the three degrees and stuff, you know. Was there any more more enjoyable parts of the book and and what you oh, yeah. look back yeah. on? Yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of fun in it, you know. I mean, uh, going back to my early days in Grainer, for instance, you know, I ran along the beach, Grand Anne's Beach, a fantastic beach, um, jumping off a jetty into my mum's arms, you know, that, that, that I, I remember that uh, fully. And then, you know, the... The nicest part, I suppose, of the, the playing side is just being in the dressing room. You know, um, I got a chance to uh, prove to myself that I could play at a top flight. I then go, um, I get a chance at West Brom. Didn't start off particularly well, but after the first two games, which I don't talk about, mm-hmm. um, everything seemed to settle down for me. Um, great. I'll always mention this lad, Lenny Cantello, who um, helped me settle in up to a point. Um, I thought he had a great influence on me to begin with. And then, but meeting up with Laurie and Cyril, who I didn't know, um, was, and the three of us being together because we have a shared background, um, it's helpful. But, you know, that, that was a fabulous team, you know, I mean, from senior players like John Wall and Ali Robertson to Tony Brown, my roommate, Ali Brown, and then the younger players, Derek Statham, you know, uh, Tony Godden, people like that. You know, uh, Brian Robson was just emerging when I joined. Um, I think he walked by me when I first signed. I think he walked by me. I didn't have a clue he was. Good <laughs> morning. I hope I'm not upsetting. Oh, I've got my dog in the background. Can you all No, no it's no problem. <laughs> I just <laughs> have to calm my dog down as well. Chris, I'm just going to come to you um, briefly yeah. before we sort of wrap up the chat. You know, as we said, you've written a number of books. I've, I've read one of your West Brom books. I can't remember which one it is. But how does this rank, you know, this in terms of writing an autobiography and, and writing it with someone like Brendan? You know, how does that rank among you? Um, among well, your works? I used the word privilege earlier, which it was. I think the other two books were very, um, very much anecdotal from a different point of view. There were players that maybe um, I'd uh, I got to know through covering West Brom or or through um, had been part of a more recent history. But I was very appreciative that that Brendan's career and Brendan's life was so much more than just four or five years at West Brom. It was a whole um, background. It was the the education at Arsenal, Cambridge, the work with the PFA during such a uh, seismic period for football, really, when the Premier League came about. And of course, the the um, 
subsequent uh, issues around racism, um, not only prevalent during Brendan's career, but more recently. And and uh, and the the personal relationships that Brendan had really with his family, with his wife, but also with his teammates and former managers. I, I knew that I was um, getting. Uh, an insight that money can't buy really it's it's one of these things that you just look back on and at the end of it and you know I know Brendan got emotional doing it I got emotional at times doing it too because it was such a a wonderful uh, emotional journey at times in so many great things but so many sad things as well not not many but one or two that I know were difficult for Brendan to talk to and and it you know I'll always be very um very honored that I was part of that yeah Brendan it's interesting you mentioned that I've got two questions left Brendan a lot you know it's probably not something that Albion fans will look at straight away but your work with the PFA you know you you had such a big role with the PFA you know and we hear about the PFA all the time just give us a little bit of an insight into that and, and and things that we can maybe expect in the book without giving obviously giving too much away but anything you know just to underline how difficult your work was with the, the, the well, I think we, as Chris mentioned, um, the the changes within the game that occurred um, started in mid '80s, really. You know, with the the change in the regulations of the football league as it was then, uh, with all the ninety two clubs, and then they wait, they're waiting, receiving a third of the gate, and then the the league, the big clubs, uh, reeling against that because uh, the, the smaller clubs are always blocking the big clubs for change. So that started in the mid '80s, and of course we had the um, advent of the Premier League in 92, um, the threat against the PFA and receiving funds on behalf of its members. Um, we went to a strike ballot and the Electoral Reform Society said it was the biggest return um, in terms of a ballot and a 90, 90% plus in favour of a strike. You know, we didn't go on strike, but that was a threat. So there's a lot of those changes. And then we had um, the anti-racism campaign, which uh, was a long time coming in a way. Um, in 93, being in mind, black players were coming to the fore from the early, early, well, late 60s, early 70s. So there's a lot going on in the PFA at the time. And it's a, I mean, it's a great organisation, um, oldest sporting um, union in the world. Um, at the time, working with Gordon Taylor was a fantastic, very exciting, um, dealing with the players, um, making sure that the players are looked after, not just current players, but former players. So there's a, there's a lot. And I had 18 years and it was a fantastic period in my life. And um, having to retire... I was only 31 um, when I had to retire. It came a bit earlier than I hoped it would, but then to be able to find something which still kept me heavily involved in the game, dealing with players, dealing with clubs. I mean, having to deal with club chairman, that's another book on its own. <laughs> club chairman, you know, dealing with managers, you know, who you'd seen as players and then they knew you um, as a player myself and having to deal with them on behalf of players. You know, sometimes, you know, when they want to discipline players, I'm saying to them, well, hold on a minute, you know, you can't go, you know, that hard on him. And it was great, that sort of banter, and you had great respect. I mean, we lost um, yesterday Franny Lee, you know, he passed away. I knew him very well when he was chairman of um, Man City. And uh, you got to know these people who I, before I was just seeing on the pitch. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm in boardrooms with them and discussing things with them. So it was great. I had a great time. Listen, I know I've been really fortunate, met great people in my career, still meet great people, and I'm forever grateful that football found me yeah 
I'm, we could sit here and, and talk all day about all the stories from the book, but then there'd be no point in anyone buying the book because we tell all the stories. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, just one final question, really, just a bit of a broad one. What What's your main takeaway from it, Brendan? You know, what when you look at that book now in front of you and you see that the work that you've done with Chris and talking and reliving all these stories, what is what's what gives you the, the biggest buzz? What gives you the, you know, makes you happy looking at that book? What's your, your main takeaway from it, really? Well, I, I think I'm really, again, you look back on it, you don't think about it too much when you're, in the throes of it, but I look back on it and just to have that prefix, professional footballer, you know, um, I look at how a decision made by my mum for when I was nine years old, I mean, I don't know how long she was planning it, but to send her two boys away, her two youngest children, um, away to England for two years, you know, there's no flipping Zoom and Teams and we all know um, about that, but not seeing it. I remember having to write on, um, these AMA letters um, to write a, um, a letter once a month to my mum because I wasn't going to sit for two years. But she made a decision, a very bold decision, that resulted in me having a career in sport, in football, and for her to have thought of there's a better opportunity for us out there and to make that decision on her own and fulfil it is fantastic. So I get a real buzz at times when I think, yeah, I made it in the game from a background really where I had nobody around me to sort of guide me or anything like that. But I was lucky enough picked up by Arsenal and they guided me through to a professional career. So it's a very competitive, the world of professional sport is very, it's very um, attritional. And to actually have made it in some capacity as a professional footballer, I'm, um, I'm really sort of proud of that, but also very grateful that I was given the opportunity. There we go. Fantastic to hear from from Brendan Batson um, and the work he's done and, and, and what will be included in that. But you can get your hands on, on copies online and on social media. But we will actually have a few signed copies um, to give out on the Baggage Broadcast in the coming weeks. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to announce the details of that little mini competition on next week's episode. Right, Coxie, time to question you. We've got some Burning questions in from the Albion fans. A lot of them will have been answered. Um, I think a couple of them are on the uh, the injury to John Swift, which has now been covered. Um, he's going to be out until after the, the next, not this international break, the next one. Um, so I'm going to go with a question from Andy Poole. Uh, this is a really good question, actually. Um, was driving around for work. Both Derby and Coventry have roads named after legendary players like Jimmy Hill and Brian Clough Way. Why haven't WBA done something similar? Could we even... We could even start with a name for the East Stand. It's mm. a, a great point, Coxie. It's a really mm. good, really good point. Um, who are you yep. putting forward? Who, who, who are you going for there? Who's your, you know... Who should have a a, a a road? There's a, there's, there's going to be a long list, isn't there? We've got you know around the halls at the moment. We've got you know we've got the Bomber Brown statue. We've got the Jeff Astle gates. You know we've got the I think it's the Tony Godden entrance. Um, yeah, I think there might even be a Tony I, Brown entrance in the ground. I'm I, I, sure. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I realise Bomber's got his his statue, but yeah, if if we're looking at roads, I mean it's a great shout actually. It, it is, but if if we're looking at roads, yeah, maybe stand as well. I've seen a lot of that mentioned then. It's tough to look beyond uh, Tony, isn't it? Beyond Bomber. Yeah. Um, but there are countless options, isn't it? I mean, Cyril yeah, Regis Cyril, Way, the Laurel Cunningham yeah. Way. I thought, yeah, yeah, Cunningham's another one that came to my mind. Um, that would be a great touch. But I think, you know, 
I think you might struggle to rename. You might struggle to rename the Birmingham Road, given how, how long it is. Um. Yeah, yeah. It's not. A, <laughs> the point is, it's not, it's not an Albion decision, that is it. It's, no. It's, you know, it's, the East Stand is a great shout. Yeah, the East Stand is a really is. good shout. Um, it is. Yeah. Maybe the Silverage or the Laurie Cunningham Stand might be something that. Yeah, you know, we know people from the club listen to this. It might be something that's taken forward or it might be something that's been discussed already. But I think it's, like you said, it's a really nice touch. There's some really poignant things around the Hawthorns, like, for example, you know, the Jeff Astle gates and, you know, we've got the Memorial Garden now, you know, at the yeah. sort of corner of the East End and the Smedic End and, 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 and various other little bits and pieces, entrances and stuff. But yeah, it's a really good point there for Andy. Um, I think naming stands, I'd like to see. I, I don't know the logistics of naming stands but i don't imagine it's as easy as we'd all maybe think um yeah it's not as easy as printing uh, a sign and whacking it on there and uh, no there. obviously um some clubs you know have, have them open for for sponsorship and that's a yeah, you know yeah. useful little learner um uh, and is viable but it's not popular is it you know fans don't really want you know they want money into the album but they don't want to sit in the you know select car leasing stand or, or, or whatever um but no, yeah why did you have to pick that name i hate that is that reading i think so oh, i hate yeah, that great name I, I, I was half trying to mix it in with a brand that doesn't really exist yeah. so not to upset anyone but i went there um yeah, <laughs> yeah it'd, be, it'd be a lot more popular named after a other car a leasing companies are available by the way yeah absolutely yeah we could call it the pa- uh, if we called it the Papa John's stand and got free pizza to everyone sitting in it, that would uh, go down slightly better, yeah, wouldn't it? Would, but, um, would go well. Yeah, former players would, would go down well. However, you know, how do you then decide which player it becomes? Yeah. Do you do a vote? It's yeah, it's it's, it's one of those, isn't it? But I, I think there is, there are logistics behind it, and you know, hoops to jump through that probably make it a little bit trickier than it than it would be. And 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 naming a road especially one because yeah that's that's council led isn't it and and that yeah when our council meetings can go don't we johnny uh meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting a meeting about a meeting meeting um yeah. i think you need yeah, to stand yeah. for the local council andy try and drive this forward um but it's a really good a really good question nathan aldridge has got in touch um if there isn't a takeover by january slash end of the season do you know if the club are in a position to offer players new contracts i think moa and kipper are both out of contract at the end of the season i'm sure carlos would like to keep them both that's that's a really a really good yeah. way to look at it um nate aldridge with that question there um it's one that we you know we're probably not going to be able to give a definitive answer to now nate but um i would imagine it's going to be a difficult conversation to have because in any other ideal world given the fact that moa and kipra are you know players who are playing at the moment you know things change i'm sure carlos would like to tie them down but I'm sure that as as everything at the moment at Albion, the finances are going to dictate it. It's funny, isn't it? Because last season, um, heading into summer, just gone, there was talk of not not too many players out of contract. You know, just your Livermores and whoever else it was, Rogic and Key and Brian. One's like, one other wasn't there, I think. Um, and then it was yeah, but but next summer, yeah, summer twenty four. There's a, there's a whole host, isn't there? There's well, a dozen easy senior players, and mm. and you're looking at the list at the time. Obviously, Moa and Kipper are out on loan, and it's almost like, well, they're a given to be, you know, uh, on on the on the move out pile. Realistically, you know, they're out on loan; they're not wanted. However, now they seem very much part of it. But um, as you rightly say, Johnny, the finances dictate, and it, you know, we don't know what the finances will be like. We don't know what the ownership situation will be like. Come then. Um, there's another name. There's another name or two on that list, and and one being Matt Phillips, 
and and obviously Kyle Bartley's another one. Now these are you know, long-serving players of a high-profile careers who are big earners. Now, yeah, you know, we know Alvin's wage budget to turnover is still something that you know, drastically needs looking at. Yeah, you know, they, they lowered it. Some are just gone, but not enough. And there's there's clearly a knowledge and acceptance in the club that it's a big line in the sand next summer in terms of players out of contract. Albion will have to be ruthless and cutthroat. I, I would say even if there's a takeover situation, you know, there's a lot of players there who are they big parts of the future. I don't think so. Realistically, I don't think it takes a, a rocket scientist to work that out. However, you know, in, in Phillips, in Moa, in Kipra, you've got three players there who are regulars this season and doing well. So all of a sudden, Carlos Corbin has to look at that and think, do I want these to be part of the furniture moving forward, part of the plans? Can I yeah, afford to have them part of the furniture and plans moving forward? Um, as I say, you, you know, you, you're Matt Phillips. You're just using him as an example, would be a big earner. Can, it, can the maths work? Or does Matt Phillips being 32-33 work against him in, in terms of being able to, to, to value it as being viable? Maybe, you know, just does Kipra being a bit younger, I don't know, on, on a lesser deal, make it more worthwhile with an example like him? Or are the finances as strict as, look, realistically, we need this line in the sand to be a real your watershed moment and we, we can't offer anything. It's hard to say on that, isn't it? Because we don't know about the ownership situation. But if the ownership situation hasn't changed come next April and May, when this is all looked at, I think... Yeah, the situation is is as severe as Albion might have to just, you know, clean sweep, foul swoop, you know. Mm. That, that's that's just as, as ruthless as they may well have to be. Um, and that makes it a real line in the sand, doesn't it? Because that yeah. that, that really it batters the squad depth quite severely. So, listen, uh, um, it might be a situation where it, it doesn't, you know, as I say, Kipra, Moat, Phillips are and continue to be key players and Albion can make something happen with maybe not all of those, Maybe one, maybe two. We'll see. But there's a there's a lot of players in that out of contract list who are squad players who will be you know, will be let go because Albion can't avoid doing otherwise. Yeah, a couple of uh, couple of different questions. Now, Jess Ackroyd, one of our regular listeners, slightly off topic, but what do you think's gone? What do you think about what's gone down at Blues? We all want a new owner, but it's not great when they <laughs> fire a good manager to bring in someone they've just heard of. Yeah, it's. Uh... We'd probably, well, like Jess, the, I, we'd probably I, like the owner, but not the, their thinking, probably, at the moment. Yeah, Jess. Jess, I, I didn't think that post-match press conference would be a John Eustace farewell. Don't get me wrong, I'm not as au fait of uh, all the you know coughs and splutters going on at Blues. Obviously, then, then the headline stuff, we, we don't cover them as, uh, as other outlets might. But, wow, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I know, you know, radical new owners, you know, that might want the glitz and the glamour, but... It just helped Blues into the playoff positions, hadn't he? Eustace with, with yeah. that. Um, From where they, you look where they a, were. You know, a, look, look where they were. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's I, ridiculous. I don't know they've been on a you know, handful of winless run before that but to be honest Cox it's almost like probably in the summer the fact that Corbrandt took Albert from the bottom of the table to the edge of the playoffs it's like it's just like Albert turning around in the summer and going yeah we're going yeah, yeah. to get Frank Lampard in or something yeah. like that you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I, it's got it stinks of ending in tears, doesn't it? And that's yeah. not against Rooney, whose record isn't yeah, you know, doesn't no. smack of being brilliant, does it? Obviously, there's a reason why they've gone for Wayne Rooney, and it's because he's Wayne Rooney. And yeah, it's not to say it might not work. You know, he might, he might be able to keep Albion going along the same level that that Eustace has. But I, I think it's a horrific decision, frankly, yeah. frankly, um, uh, and one that could well 
competitive fighting them. Yeah, Tonky Towers. Something different. How do you guys cope with three games per week schedule, especially if there's press conferences, many miles of return travel, writing copy, pods, and X or Twitter, as we all know it, um, to cope with? I'll let you lead on that one, Danny. I know, I know we both have slightly different roles when it comes to all that stuff, but yeah. Yeah, it's probably yeah, it's a it's an interesting question uh, if you yeah. want to hear the answer. But yeah, so we've had we've had a couple of three game weeks now. Well, you had a busy. I had a two game week last week, but we just go to like Bristol City. Um, then we got Watford, and then I can't remember who it was on the Saturday. Millwall, yeah, Millwall, wasn't it? Millwall, I suppose yeah, that's so. an extreme example, though, isn't it, Johnny? Because I was off, um, but I, yeah. you know, say for argument's sake, we were both working. Yeah, in terms of that, it's um, it makes it busier. But I suppose you know we're in. I hate to say we're in a privileged position because you know we work hard to to do to get to where we are in our jobs, but we are quite lucky and quite fortunate, you know. Well, yes, there's a lot of travelling and travelling around, um, and it does sort of knock around schedules. For example, you mentioned press conferences there. You know, if I've been playing on a Saturday, but then playing on a Tuesday, there might not be a press conference on that Monday, and it's sort of yeah. married into the Saturday one, which means you've got to sort of rush to come up with getting different lines and asking questions. And because post-match press conferences, as Coxie will, you know, explain, are very different to a relaxed pre-match press conference on a Friday or on a Monday yeah. before maybe a Wednesday or a Tuesday game. Um, the miles of travel, yeah, it's, it's sort of getting back late. I think Watford, I got home at three in the morning and then you're sort of back in work the next day. And what it does, you sort of, it gives you less chance to sort of maybe bring other, or you guys as Albion fans or, you know, fans of other clubs, because, you know, we do look at other clubs, um, other sort of articles and copy. And it does make it quite quite difficult pod wise it makes it extremely difficult because it's when you have to sort of decide when to do a podcast for example you know if albion had a game so we're recording this on a wednesday morning you know if albion had a game tonight you know we've only got you know we don't record on a sunday you know out we've only got a monday or a tuesday to record a podcast by a wednesday a lot of that's out of date um so that was very much the case with with sheffield wednesday last week where we recorded a podcast on a monday but we sort of were, we had to not really talk about what was going to happen on the Tuesday night because by Tuesday night that podcast was out of date and you know I was away for a few days. So there are, yeah, it's, it's, there are a few logistics, but you know, it's a fantastic job and we just sort of yeah. navigate around it, don't we? Navigate around that and your poor timekeeping and we're, we're almost there, aren't we, mate? <laughs> Oh, slightly unsubtle dig there. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, the, the, the unsociable hours are. Yeah, slightly, slightly difficult. They're, they're, they're the toughest thing, I, I would say, really, about the role. But we don't kid ourselves. It's nothing but a privileged um, role and a joy to do. And like you said at the top of that question, Johnny, you work, you know, you you aren't just uh, handed, uh, you know, roles like this on a silver platter, are you? You know, you, you work hard for it and make your way for it through, you know, we, we both started with studies, didn't we? So that's going back... Um, I know we might not look old, look the oldest in the world, but we're, we're getting oh, on. I don't know, we? mate. I look pretty weathered, yeah. to be honest, looking at myself well, on this Microsoft yeah. Teams screen. I will finish yeah. that off, Tonky Towers. You're asking there about many miles of travel. Uh, I returned from Albion at one thirty in the morning and then I had to get on a plane. Well, I had to get in a car to go to an airport to get on a plane at like four in the morning. So last Wednesday morning, because of Albion's midweek schedule, I was pretty knackered. But uh, they won the game, you know, and, so that's all about it. Another thing about, another recent example I can give you, we talk about... Um, yeah, after a, with a midweek game, they're not always being a, a pre-match press, press conference on a Monday uh, just to give, you know, Carlos a bit of a breather and things like that to save the overkill. Um, 
managers don't, aren't massive fans of speaking for the next game straight after the last one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So e- even after a you know the, the best you know a four nil win at Preston, best game of the season, best performance for a while, you know, even after that, is Carlos Corban interested in talking about Sheffield Wednesday that came on the Tuesday night? And no. So that that's, that's tough from our logistically isn't it but uh but we get by uh best we can you you start you learn how people work and and adjust adjust to that so every manager is different just as every person is and um yeah it's uh, there's no doubt our week change when another you know midweek match is thrown in there and, and we have sort of schedules we loosely try and keep to don't we johnny with you know copy videos podcasts but um yeah we're, we're lucky enough to be able to be pretty flexible i would say yeah, I, I I wish I wish we could do more podcasts in person. Actually, I do. Um, but logistically, even where we live, you know, the fact that we both don't go into an office every day, I, I do more often than you. Don't I? You you live a bit more out in the sticks, but um, yeah, I, I just think that the podcasting in person are are fun, and you get a bit more out from them rather than being behind a screen. Well, we we do the best we can, but um, but yeah, we'll have to. Hopefully, one day we can. We can get a suitable location lockdown. Modern world, modern, uh, modern world. Um, Tonky Towers, thank you very much for your question. Uh, we'll stay on Carlos Corbrand that you mentioned there, Coxie. Baggy Al, um, do we think there's a scenario where Carlos walks this season? Slash, enough is enough. Feel like the poor bloke is having it piled on at the moment. Lesser managers will have walked, and I worry he'll want more than just mid-table mediocrity if we aren't moving forward. Um, all the noises you've had from Carlos regarding the off-field situation, Coxie, is that, you know, he's very well aware, he's got his eyes open, you know, and to be fair, in amongst all the scenarios at the moment, he's doing a pretty good job at the moment, considering, you know, what he's having thrown from him off the field and the fact that his injury list is, well, his attacking injury list is not looking fantastic. Yeah, I think, I think I've said this before. I, I don't worry about that, to be honest. Um at this stage, no, no, I don't. Um, listen, Carlos is his own person. He's got, he's got his own family life. He's got a young child. He's got another child on the way. Busy man at home. You, you wouldn't know it from the workload he puts in. But it's a busy household in the Corbran household. But I, I don't see that. He's a, he's a fiercely ambitious young coach who always puts across what a fiercely privileged role he's in. And he cares deeply about being successful at Albion. He, he understands the club and its history and the weight of expectation. And yes, look, he's in charge in toughest period of the club's history, one of. Um, but he, he he knew that to a point when he took the job. He certainly went into the summer just gone with his eyes yeah. open and he's kept abreast of, of the developments. So, you know, hopefully, I, an ideal answer, he's looking forward to the time when things change and Albion hopefully Touchwood can become the force you know that they should be um with ideally him at the at the helm I don't get any alternatives alternates to that you know that he's you know annoyed with the situation more than more than um you know I think he becomes more aghast at what's going on or more fed up or more there's an argument with that Coxie around sort of I get, I get exactly what Bagial's saying, and it could be the case yeah. that you know, if Albion are, are really struggling, you know, does Carlos Corbran, you know, want that on his reputation? But on the flip side of it, you know, yeah, if Carlos Corbran comes through this situation, you know, and does 
fantastically well with Albion in extremely difficult circumstances. You know, you dare to dream, but takes them up this season, whether it's by the playoffs, don't think it'll be automatically given the, the two runaway guys at the top and, and, and how sort of convoluted that top 10 is. But if he does do that, you know, it, his reputation would increase by getting Albion up anyway. If he does it in this yeah. scenario, it increases not tenfold, but it increases more. So there is that sort of more of an incentive there, if you get what I mean, Cox. And that's a hypothetical answer because that's probably not how Corbram would look at it. But that is a valid argument. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was the case last season, wasn't it? The difference he made when he came in last October to, to the summer. I know it, it tailed off and they didn't quite get over the line, but his stock, stock was high because of it. And yeah, I think that's bang on, Johnny. You can look at it both ways, can't you? So he's... Yeah, you know, and, and and his name has been mentioned around Leeds and uh, you know jobs, wasn't it, on the back of doing well in his first season with Albion? So, yeah, he'll be he'll be aware of that, and 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 he'll hope and think that, you know, while at the club, things behind the scenes can ideally improve. And yeah, you know, the, the whole landscape changes. Touch wood with a takeover, doesn't it? Let let's be clear, and that's what people are working towards. Yeah, I'm gonna. Add, we've got three questions yet. I'm gonna read one more out. And then we'll save the other two for next week because we're this this podcast yep. is going to be bumper bumper long as as already is. Nick Walker with Grady being called up to the Congo squad. Will we lose him for the African Cup of Nations? Now, this is something that will relate to Shemi Ajayi um, in terms of internationals and Coxie. It looks like it might relate to to Grady, Grady Dean Garner should he make a DR Congo squad. Well, he's made it now, but given yeah. the, the uh, tournament in January. Yeah, if Dean Garner's still at Albion after the January window, which, you know, remains an if. You know, he was a big talking point in the summer, wasn't he, of, of interest. And if he gets back from international duty and continues to play well in Albion's financial situation, yeah, it remains an if. But, you know, he's, he's likely to remain at the club, I suppose, at the time of we're, we're currently speaking. He And gets called up. Yes, he will, because DR Congo have qualified for AFCON. So yes, um, yeah, oh, and, and I would wager that if he continues to be in the Alvin squad and avoids injury between November and January, he will January February he will be in the squad. So that's a joy. That's Dean Garner. Um, Kipra is not in the Ivory Coast squad at the moment, but were he called up, uh, Ivory Coast are typically quite strong, aren't they? And has he been capped by the Ivory Coast, Cedric Kipra? Can't quite remember. I'm just having a look at that as we speak. Um, no, he hasn't. He's played uh, under 23s football for them. I didn't think he had. Um, so, yeah, it, it would take some phenomenal form for him to get a call. But listen, losing a giant Dean Garner for a lot of Jan and Feb, certainly Feb, would, is a blow, isn't it? And it's, it's a good job there are centre half options and it's a good job there are wide options. But any injuries around that point will make things difficult, won't they? So, yeah, it's very much one to be aware of come the turn of the year. Yeah. Thank you very much for your questions, Baggies fans. We're almost almost out of time. Coxie, week off this week. Internet. The one thing that the international break does give, it gives you, you know, as much as we love going to watch the Albion, it gives you, gives you Saturday off. Anything, anything nice planned with your... Uh... Uh, yeah, we're we're uh, we're hitting the road. Take yeah, heading to uh, heading up across the border, Johnny. Might might pass you en route to uh, to Wales to taking the the, uh, the settings for a couple of nights. Just I'm working I'm working Sunday, which is which is fine. Um, 
but yeah, nice, nice bit of uh, sea and sand and Welsh countryside for me, mate. Thank you. Nice, mate. Yourself? Nice, mate. You I'm working gonna Saturday? Be, I'm going to be uh, the absolute superb clash that is going to be Walsall against Gillingham on Saturday. Taking in a bit of. Oh, yeah. League two action, no rest for no rest for me, Coxie. But uh, can't keep out of the black country, can you, mate? You can't, can't keep mate. out. Can't of keep me country. away. Can't keep me away from EFL football. Baggies fans, I hope you've enjoyed that that bumper episode as we approach yet, as we said, another international break. We've got another one in November, um, so we're bringing you hopefully another another big bumper episode. Um, but I hope you have a great weekend. Um, if it's your, a non-league game, you might be taking in going down the pub or. Maybe a bit of shopping um, with the other half. Maybe head down to the Kettle of Toaster Man, see what you can get down there, treat your other half too. We never know. But um, we'll be back next week. Well, we'll be looking at Plymouth and, uh, and beyond. Um, but until next time, from me and Coxie, boing, boing. Boing, boing.